You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Well, good morning. Good being with you guys. Great to be back. Uh, We're going to jump into a new message series called Unwrapping Christmas. So uh, last night at my household, we decided to watch the old Christmas story and the famous line, you'll shoot your... You got it. So tons of fun. Um, You know, when we come to uh, the Christian story of Christmas, sometimes we forget kind of the details about it. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to jump into that uh, and we're going to have a great time. So open up your Bible, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. I'll walk through it and then I'm going to give you some ways in that I think that we can relate as believers to the story. And then as well, I want to show you how when we look at this story that we can trust God in kind of a tough time. So, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but probably one of the toughest things I think for that's going on right now with this whole pandemic is the social relationship side, like families, friends, plans, Thanksgiving, no Thanksgiving, who's all coming over, who did they connect with, are they this, are they that? I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, it's emotionally exhausting in so many realms, part of the social dynamics of that. And so what I want to do today is take a relook at the Christmas story and then show you how Jesus shows up in kind of a time frame that's kind of like ours. It's politically, spiritually, physically, and even financially kind of a tough time. And so we're going to look at this Christmas story kind of in a new light today. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 19, let's jump in. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, you've probably heard that passage before, and we're going to walk through the rest of it, but I just want to like stop for a moment and help you to see the details in this passage in the introduction of the birth of Jesus Christ. So if like you're opening up your Bible, the, the, probably the title is The Birth of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about the guy who wrote it, okay? Luke is a disciple of Jesus. He walked with Jesus, uh, hung out with Jesus. He's not just your regular old fisherman guy, though. This is a historian. This is likely a physician. Uh, Throughout the years in church history, they're like, no, 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 this guy, Luke, uber smart, very intelligent. And then when you get to um, the book of Acts, perhaps you see as well, Luke's name is connected to the book of Acts. The, The book of Acts in the New Testament is the Acts of the Apostle. It's the action of the Apostles. And so it's kind of like an action guide to the story of the early church. Luke, the gospel of Luke, it's the good news about Jesus, but he takes kind of a historian approach. He's been financially commissioned by this guy named Theophilus, a Roman uh, official of some sort, kind of like I've friends with some pastors who are writers, and sometimes those writers get financed and scholarship to go write on a particular subject. Uh, in the academic world, in seminaries and professors and in the universities, sometimes these writers get commissioned financially to go write about a certain topic. So Luke's topic is Jesus and the birth of Jesus. And there's this reality that he's giving some historical context here. So we all know, like, <clears throat> when you think of Caesar, you probably think of little Caesars, like pizza, pizza. 
But the Caesar in their day, this is the Roman Empire guy. And uh, what we know about the Roman Empire, it's not an, an easy system to live in. I mean, unless you're Roman completely, and even then it's a little tough. But Caesar is an emperor, and he says that everybody should be registered. In other words, like, you need, we need a consensus. So I don't know, does anybody ever fill out the consensus? I mean, we've been hit up pretty hard. Some of you are like, no way, I never fill that thing out. Uh, but many of us do, right? And so what is going on here, Caesar is asking for a, a census. He's asking for not a consensus, a census. And so the question is, why should everybody be registered? What's going on? Well, very likely it's for taxes, so what we're going to learn early on in the Christmas story, there's a lot of taxes going on, and that's not fun. Um, then there's this military ambition that Rome is going to stay a powerhouse empire for a very, very long time. So everybody that would get registered would get on the docket for if we call you, we're going to draft you, and you're going to war. So this is kind of the context that's being portrayed. Now, before you give Caesar too much power, remember Caesar calls for a census, but God is still in control. Amen? So the whole thing is cool, is that while this story is unfolding, God is using government to uh, issue this census. It's going to be direct fulfillment of prophecy predicted that Jesus would, eventually, he would uh, be born in Bethlehem, and we're going to see how all the birth of Jesus Christ unfolds. Caesar issues a census, but I argue, please, 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 see God is in total control. Verse 4, and it says, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Another phrase for Bethlehem is the house of bread, and it's really kind of cool. I love bread, you know. Um, I love bread. It's so good. But bread is, like Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's what he said one time. I am the bread of life. And from Bethlehem, you get Jesus. So it's really cool. So Joseph is going to Bethlehem. He's, because it says, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, his ancestor lived there, and then to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, that betrothed is deeper than an engagement. And look what it says. Luke doesn't skip this detail because he is a doctor, Dr. Luke. Kind of like, I don't know, you guys might like Indiana Jones, but Jones, Dr. Jones was kind of like a, uh, uh, he's a very smart guy, uh, professor, very gifted, very smart. This is Dr. Luke, and he's on an adventure to capture the details, who was with child. Now, how many of you have ever been pregnant before? Hopefully no men raise their hands. Okay, how many, raise your hands, ladies, real high, there we go. Okay, so Lots of, lots of love to you because that is incredibly difficult. My wife, very small, petite little frame, she was very much with childs, children. She, we have twins. Uh, when she went in, I remember they were doing the little thing, uh, the, putting the jelly on and showing us the, the thing, the screen, and we see little people in there. And uh, the doctor says, well, I'll be the first to tell you you're having twins. And I'm so freaked out. I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't have enough money for twins. We can't do that. No, 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 no. And then my wife just starts crying. And I said to the doctor, doctor, please stop. You know, this is too much for my wife right now. You know, like, can we get a second opinion? And, and the doctor says, I am the second opinion. And I'm like, 
I don't like it. I don't like it. And sure enough, we have twins. She was very much with child. She had about 12 pounds of baby right towards the end of the pregnancy. And it was my job to get her anything and everything she wanted and she loved. So she craved chocolate pie. I gave her chocolate pie. She craved whatever she wanted. I got her because I knew that it was a very difficult situation. Now let's jump into the shoes of Joseph and Mary for a minute. Joseph, why do you got to take Mary? Why do you got to take her back to Bethlehem? She's not going to join the military. You should pay the taxes. Why do you got to take her? And, and, and by the way, this little trip is like 80 miles. So Mary, you're so pregnant. Come on, let's go on a big adventure. Let's go on a hike. How long is the hike, honey? 80 miles. That ain't happening. Do you know how far 80 miles is? I'd be like from here to Prescott. Imagine ladies being very, very pregnant, and your husband says, look, we got to go. We got to go. We're going to hike. We're going to be good. Like, no. This is not a good conversation. Joseph and Mary are probably, they got some family tension going on, some marital tension going on. But guess what? Mary knows a couple of things. One, she knows Rome is powerful. Rome's not very forgiving. They invented crucifixion. If they issue a decree, Joseph's got to go. So why does she go? Why does she go with Joseph? Why didn't she just stay home with family and friends? I'll tell you why she didn't stay home with family and friends. Because she would have been the object and the subject of all sorts of gossip and slander. People were talking bad about this young lady. She was only about 15 years old, and then she gets pregnant. And then she says, well, I didn't sleep around. I wasn't sleeping around with anybody. But she's pregnant. Joseph freaks out and says, well, we got to get a divorce. Like, you're going to ruin my name? This is going to be terrible? And so Joseph says, you know what? Finally, an angel appears and says to Joseph, Joseph, look, this is my, my work I'm doing in her. This is a virgin. This is fulfillment of prophecy from all sorts of scriptures and Isaiah and Micah and on and on and on. These ancient predictions are being fulfilled. And so Joseph takes Mary 80-something miles, hiking, imagine, from here to Prescott, very pregnant, and they go. So point is, it's a tough time. So let's go on. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and lied him in a what? Manger. So I got one right over here, kind of, very Christmassy. And uh, a manger would be like a feeding trough that you would put hay in, and then the animals could eat. So, and then let's finish out the verse. And it talks about this feeding trough, wrapped them in a swaddling cloth, laid them in a manger, because why? There was no place for them in the inn. So perhaps uh, this uh, manger was uh, this place where they could stay, would be for many travelers that would kind of come along the way. And it would imagine like a two-story structure. The, the bottom story is open ground, and you could put uh, animals uh, down there, tie them up, but you could also camp out and hang out down there. And so that's what Joseph and Mary got. They don't have a whole lot. On the second story would be a place where people could stay indoors, totally enclosed, would be much nicer. Well, obviously, they probably don't have a lot of money or because they're there. And probably there's a lot of people traveling at the same time. So this is the context that you ought to get into and understand in this Christmas story. Verse 8, and in the same region, 
you know, Paul, or, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the Luke captures these details, and he says, and in the same region there were shepherds, and the shepherds are folks that tend sheep, and, but they're socially kind of like the outcasts. They were considered unclean because they were hanging out with them all the time and uh, by the religious community. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I mean, it's not every day, like, you see an angel. Um, you hear people on, on television from time, and they're like, I saw this, or I saw that, and Im- immediately you're like, are you, like, schizophrenic? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, I don't know. Like, angelic visitations is not normal, okay? So if an angel appeared to me, I would probably freak out. Um, The Apostle Paul warned about that in today's time in the church age. But in this context, these signs were predicted and prophesied about, and it's finally happening. But it was this unusual event where shepherds are seeing these angels. Verse 10 Let's see what the angel said. And the angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that'll be for all people. That was my best angel voice. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, meaning lots of angelic uh, uh, beings, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Two things about this peace real quick. Um, this kind of peace was a kind of peace for the Romans. They just thought it meant a, maybe a, a cessation of war, like no more military fights. For the Jewish concept of understanding this uh, announcement of peace, it would be like a shalom. The the Hebrew word is shalom. And it means like a a holistic peace. And the reality is, is uh, wartime was still happening. Now, Rome had some some peace that was going on, but there are still some battles and skirmishes. But people's heart are not filled with peace during this time. The Jewish folks hated the Romans, and the Romans hated the Jews. It's not peace and, and wonderful. And even in the time of Christ, I mean, you know later, you hear stories about Herod, how he issues this decree and has all these children wiped out and murdered. Like, that kind of peace is, is not present. And then the Jewish peace is this holistic peace, that, that you're good emotionally and spiritually, and that God brings this peace into our lives. And, but the real peace that is announced by the angels is the peace that is will come in part when Jesus shows up and when, as believers, we trust Jesus, we experience some peace. But the real peace that we long for is when Jesus returns the second time. And I taught uh, weeks back past about the living in the last days and understanding the events that will happen. One day, King Jesus is coming back to set up a peace that where there is no suffering, there is no war, there is no sin, there is no more sorrow, and that day awaits us. So verse 15, and I'll close out and give you some ways we can relate. When the angels went away from from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they're active. They are announced that Jesus is being born, this wonderful child, and he is a savior. 
in verse 16. And they went with haste and they found, who'd they find? Help me out. They found Mary. Yeah, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had, they'd been told them concerning this child, verse 18. And when they heard it, they wondered at the, what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So three ways we can relate. Number one, you need to know back then and even today, these were tough times for believers. It wasn't an easy time to be a believer back then. And it's definitely not an easy time to be a believer today. I mean, you don't know the the church dynamics online, on campus, the political atmosphere, I mean, the, the, the medical issues that are going on, the educational issues are, I mean, it's kind of a tough time, right? Let me tell you about them and what was going on. Spiritually, it was a tough time for them. They were in a period of about 400 years of silence. A prophet hadn't spoken up about the Messiah and the details of this Messiah coming for 400 years. So kind of like uh, is the, the Jewish community was like saying like, man, we had it rocking years and years ago, but it's been like 400 years before since we've had a prophet speak about a Messiah do anything. So spiritually, it's a tough time for them. Politically, it's a tough time for them. Caesar's not an easy king to have in your life, controlling your life, especially if you're a Jew. Politically, they're frustrated they're not happy with the political atmosphere. Their, their intention to be a believer in the Roman Empire was a pretty tough experience. Um, physically and financially, they were tired. Um, they didn't have great medical assistance. They, uh, very likely, Joseph and Mary were very poor. Uh, they can't afford to, to get into a nice place. These are tough times. Number two, this event was unexpected by most. Much like uh, our experience is this coronavirus and the political atmosphere. I mean, who would have thought we would be going through what we're going through? I mean, for me, I can recall some significant events in my life that have been pretty world-changing. Like 9-11. That was kind of a game-changer. Um, before that, maybe Y2K? I, I don't know, like, but this event changed history, and it was unexpected. Uh, Joseph didn't expect it. Mary was confused about it too, and she had received extra revelation from an angel, and her family members, her aunt and her uncle, helped her understand more of what was going on, and I'm sure she opened up her scriptures like, God, is this really happening? I'm just a young little girl, like, No, I'm pregnant with child, with this divine Savior. There's a lot going on here. Um, Even in the life of Jesus later, we see his family and his friends, Jesus being the Messiah, people didn't understand it. It was very unexpected. And then thirdly, I think we can relate because this event was unprecedented. A virgin birth, an angelic announcement, God in the flesh, like, Never happened before. Not like this. But I think we find ourselves in unprecedented territories, times. And it's like, there's no playbook for all this stuff. You can't find it. Like, you kind of have to figure out how to trust God in a tough time. 
You know what I'm saying? Like in a tough time when you're dealing with unknowns, uncertainties, I mean, that's the world we live in right now. There's so much uncertainty. You can't ask, you can't, I mean, you, sure, you can make some plans, but how many times are those plans getting changed? There's so much kind of unknown and unprecedented and unexpected, definitely tough times for not only American culture, but for around the world in so many ways. So here's the practical application is how do you trust God in tough times? Three things I think that you need to remember. For you yourself today, you need to hear these words that God's ways are not your ways. And if you're going to trust God in your life right now in 2020 and 2021, let this be part of your mental framework. God's ways are not your ways. The, 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 uh, the prophet Isaiah says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways. My ways, declares the Lord's, the Lord. Verse 9, for the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In other words, like, you can't put everything together. This is why we call it faith as a Christian right now. This is why it's always been called faith. And the entire Christian life is a life of faith. And there's so much uncertainty, there's so much uh, unknown and we're challenged to, to acknowledge these kinds of prayers. God, I planned this way. It's not working like I thought, but your ways are better than your, my ways. So I'll go your way. Um, Lord, I, I thought it was going to go this way, and I do not understand what's going on, but your thoughts are higher than my thoughts, and I'll trust in your thinking. You know, I mean, I feel like, my greatest lessons in life have been through what I should have done. I feel like sometimes it's the shoulda, woulda, coulda. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, golly, I, I shoulda, I woulda, I coulda. But I can't live there because that's guilt. It's not grace. But I look back on my life even before I was a Christian. And I remember telling people the last thing I'll be is a Christian. Those people, they just use, you know, God and Jesus as a crutch to get them through what they're going through. I'll never be a Christian. And all of a sudden, I realize I ain't got no peace. I don't experience the life that my friends are talking about experiencing with Jesus. I become a Christian. And then everybody says, are you serious? Ryan Rice is a Christian? Oh, yeah, he's crazy Christian. Like, you know how some people abuse drugs and alcohol? This guy abuses religion. He loves Jesus. He's living for Jesus. He's giving up stuff. And, you know, my lesson in my life has been is I've realized that God's ways are not always my ways. After I became a Christian, which I didn't want to become a Christian, then I realized I, I said out loud one time, I'll, I'll never be a youth pastor because youth pastors are just, I don't know, I, they just kind of like a joke for a job. So I'm not going to do that. And then sure enough, a, a youth leader came to me and said, Ryan, you'd be really good at being a youth pastor. And I'm like, Psh. and then sure enough, I become a youth pastor and I love it. And, and then after a season of time, so they said, you know what, Ryan, you ought to start ministering to families and the adults too. And you should go to seminary. And I thought, I don't ever want to go to seminary. I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. And sure enough, I go to seminary and I was like, okay. Well, I definitely don't want to go to Dallas. Like, I was born in Dallas. I grew up in Little Rock. 
but I don't want to go to Dallas. It's a big concrete jungle. I'm not interested in that. I want to go to Denver. So I go to Denver and look at Denver, walk around the campus, meet people like, whoa, Rocky Mountain High, baby. This is awesome. Love this place. And then I've, I got some phone calls from my family, and they said, hey, your, your grandfather's not doing well. Your aunts and your uncles, they sure could use some time if, if you could maybe look at Dallas Seminary. And so I go down to Dallas Seminary and I say, you know, it's a great school and I didn't really want to be here. I don't really like Dallas. But my grandpa's there. He needs me and he's nearing the end of his life. For three years, I got to spend time, lots of time with my grandpa. And for three years, I got to walk through a family member of mine who was deep kind of into kind of a new age kind of thought like the Gnostic Gospels, like, I don't know, the Da Vinci Code, you ever seen that movie, and all that stuff. He was into some kind of strange stuff. And I said, you know, why don't we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? Long story short, he gives his life to Jesus Christ after we read the Gospels for three years. I get to baptize him in a pool, and we become the greatest of friends. Listen, God's ways are not always your ways. I didn't want Dallas. I wanted Denver. Dallas was the best thing for me, and it by God's grace, I'm going to be with my uncle hanging out in heaven one day. My grandfather passed away. I got to be with him when I was down there. Here's what I want to say to you is God's ways are not your ways. And you say all the time, well, I'm sure there's plenty of times and you're making a plan and, and you're doing it your way, and, but it lines up with God's ways. But there's so many times where we need some, some course adjustment. And by and large, our nature, we struggle with a sinful nature at our core being. And apart from the grace of God, we're going to make some really bad mistakes. And God's word for you today is to say, look, if you're going to trust God, then you just need to acknowledge many times your ways are not God's ways. But listen, God's ways are always better. The Christian life is the best life. Secondly, I want to point out to you how you can trust God in tough times is realize this, is that God often shows up in the middle of a mess. You know, I mean, in Joseph and Mary's situation, it's kind of a messy situation. I mean, Joseph was just out saying, I'm going to divorce this lady. The family's gossiping about her. She sleeps around. Um, It's a mess. You don't even have very much money. And what did you do with the baby? You put the baby in a trough? This is a joke. You say it was a divine pregnancy? Huh? It's a mess. Jesus showed up in a mess. Jesus shows up in your life oftentimes in the mess. I think back to the life of Christ and see how he showed up one time at a funeral. But it was like, it was worse than a funeral. It was Mary and Martha and then Lazarus. Lazarus died, their brother. They put him in a tomb for four days. They were begging Jesus to come and to resurrect him. And then Jesus shows up and he's like four days late. And it's like a, I'm going to call it a divine delay. It's a divine delay. He shows up and then Mary and Martha both say in essence, if you would have only been here, this is a terrible situation. My brother would have never died, but you didn't show up when he was sick. Jesus shows up in the middle of the mess. He doesn't show up before. He shows up in the middle of it. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. 
boom. And then everybody believes in Jesus because he showed up in the middle of the mess and he just resurrected somebody. And then he says something like this, I am the resurrection and the life. So what you get in life oftentimes is that God wants to meet you in the middle of your mess so that he can perform a miracle, you can trust him more. So what we do so many times when we get into a messy situation, we think, God, you're nowhere near us. I told you the story of the 9-11 cross. That cross serves as a symbol of faith, hope, and love, but it was a symbol of hope for not only the, the first responders in New York City when the World Trade Center came crashing down, it was a symbol of hope for every person in the country as they got to understand when those, tower, those towers came falling down, out of the rubble emerged this beautiful, powerful cross. And the message is, is that God is there in the mess. And that's the story of Christianity, that Jesus wants to meet you right where you're at, this middle-of-the-mess concept. So many times we think that the tragedy, it's, it's over, that God can't meet us there, but no, He does. And so, as Christians, sometimes we think we need an absence of affliction and will be a sign of our, our godliness and our goodness. Like, we don't need affliction. We're, we're doing good. We're, everything's okay. But look what the psalm says. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. See, I think what happens is sometimes is that we, we don't want to have the affliction, but it says that when you experience the affliction, that's when God shows up in the middle of it. A lot of times what you and I want is we want God to work on our timetable. Help me before I get into this, this issue. I don't want to get into this, and so please show up now. Help me to understand now. And I think oftentimes God says, you go for it. And if you mess up, I'm there. And notice that I said in the middle of the mess, not before the mess, not after the mess, oftentimes God works in the middle of it. So this gives me hope as a believer because I feel like when I'm down and things aren't working out, that's the fertile ground for God to work in my life. Remember one time I was out rock climbing uh, years ago in, in Tennessee, and uh, this young man who had just given his life to Jesus, and he seemed to know the Bible so well, and I was going through a really difficult time, and he said to me, I was sharing my story, you ever been there before? You meet somebody and you're just like, we're total strangers, so I can divulge anything to you. And you just start sharing stuff, and you're like, dude, what, what am I doing? Like, please, uh, what's your name? Uh, don't, don't, you don't want to know my name. I just, let's just keep it anonymous. <laughs> so I'm divulging, sharing what's going on, and this young, younger guy than me says to me, he says, hey, man, sometimes I've learned that God will meet you in the valley more than the mountaintops. I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, he pointed at a, at a valley and goes, see that valley down there? And I was looking, and I said, Yeah. And he goes, that's where all the fruit is. That's where it's, the soil's good. You see that mountain over there? I said, yeah, I see it. He goes, see how rocky it is? He said, where do you think the fruit grows? So the fruit grows down there. I'm like, bro, you've really helped me out. I understand now. Sometimes in, in the difficulties, in the valley, in the descent, that's, that's where God's doing his greatest work. And what you and I want is an absence of all affliction, you and I don't want to go down to the bottom of the valley, but sometimes at that low spot, that's just right where God wants to meet us the most. 
Number three, I want to challenge you, don't give up before God shows up. Don't give up. Hang in there. Don't give up before God shows up. So important. I remember uh, years ago when we started this church, there was a time where I wanted to give up. I, I literally had conversations about throwing in the towel on the church and being done with it because it was too much. I mean, the toll it takes to start a, a business or a church or an organization, you better be all in. Like you give it everything you've got. You unload every dollar you have. You sell things. You, you go at all costs if you believe in it. And that's what we did. And uh, I hit a roadblock because things weren't going as great as I wanted to in the first couple of years of the church. And then um, we decided that we would adopt a child, and uh, we couldn't adopt this one child. Um, We could only foster. And fostering is scary because when you foster a child, you don't have legal rights. They're property of the state, if you will. And we brought in this child. We started to foster her, and I loved this child. And I knew the backstory of her family. And the reason why children get into the foster care system is because something terribly went wrong with their biological parents. So we start fostering. I fall in love with this child. And I'm praying a prayer I don't want to pray. I pray something like this. Lord, this is not my child. I'll take care of this child with my wife as long as we can. And then I pray that you would reconcile her family so that she can go back to her family. That's the prayer of a foster parent. So I pray that nothing's working. Their family's getting worse. It's getting really bad. So then I start, Lord, I don't know what's going on. Now I start praying like this. Listen, Lord Jesus, I don't think it's a good situation. I don't think that she should go back with her family. This is not working. It's going to be a bad environment if she goes back. Please, Lord Jesus, let her be adopted for us. We talk to the lawyers. We talk to the, the, the caseworkers, and they say, you have no chance of adopting that child. I say, why? Oh, because we discovered uh, the child is partially Native American. So you got no chance. The, the Indian reservation, no way they're going to let you adopt this child. No, no, no. It's never happened. Hardly ever happened, okay? And then I say, well, we're going to do our best. And then I got into bird hunting, and I got this dog that I love so much, and I started training my dog. We're sitting on the back porch one day, and we're having popsicles, and my dog was there, and my dog viciously attacks my little girl, grabs her face, and yanks her around. And if I was in the country, I would have grabbed that dog and shot the dog. I'm sorry. I don't live in the country. So I grab the dog, get the dog off, put it in a pen and get the dog away, get rid of the dog immediately. And then fear sets in. We're going to be sued. That child is a child of the state. They're already don't, they already don't like us. And it's a tough situation. So now I'm going through all sorts of anxiety. I'm ready to give up. And here's what I, I came to. Totally confidential. I'm either going to have to give up this child because I can't take it and lead the church, or I'm going to give up the church and just focus on the child. And my wife said, don't give up. Let's wait for God to show up. So we prayed for a miracle. And within about a month, we got to adoption day. Let me show you the picture. The judge ruled in the favor and said, this is your child. You're a good man. That was a fluke incident. You showed every reason to be responsible 
we're awarding you full custody, and this is now Maya Rice. Isn't that cool? I wanted to give up, and, it, and I didn't know how it was all going to work. The church, I was worried about the church. didn't know how the church was going to work. And then what we decided to do is we said, it needs to change. The name of the church originally was Imago Day Community Church. Try to say that three times. It doesn't work. And so we changed the name of the church. Um, we moved locations. We, moved, we were at Barry Goldwater High School eight years ago, first Sunday morning. We moved to the movie theaters. We changed our service times. Um, we changed our, um, uh, we launched two services, and it was one of the fastest growing periods of growth in the history of our church during that season. And let me tell you, at the same time, I felt like my life was falling apart. It, isn't that crazy? That sometimes in the most difficulty that you go through, some great things start happening. And so I'm here to tell you today, I don't know, maybe, maybe, I'm concerned maybe some of you have given up on someone, a family member or a friend, and I'm going to tell you, don't give up on them. Always pray for them. Look what Ephesians 4, 2 through 4, and I'll close out with this passage. In a time like this, I'm going to challenge you, don't give up. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united. Our church needs to be united right now. Believers need to be united right now. Family members need to be united right now. Friends need to be perhaps reunited. And what do you need to do? Don't give up. How do you do that? You be humble. You be gentle. You be patient with each other. I love this. Make allowance. If you don't have allowance in your life for other people to screw up, then you're operating and running your life in guilt and performance. And as a Christian, we, we just got to give allowances, especially in a season like now. So don't give up on your friends. Don't give up on family members. Don't, don't give up on what God could be doing. I'm so glad I didn't give up. Don't give up. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, op the opportunity to sh teach and share your word this morning. Lord, we see in the Christmas story in a new way that you show up in a tough time, and we draw some pretty powerful lessons. I pray that we would apply it in our lives, Lord. And Father, for any that are here today that say, I don't know, I want to trust God, but I don't even know where to start. I pray that they would start with a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I come to you today and I acknowledge my sin and I believe in you to be the forgiveness of my sin and I confess you today. I want you to take over my life. I want to trust you. And Father, for all of us, might we pray a prayer like this. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask for your help. We want to trust you and we want to change. Make us humble. Make us patient. Lord, give, help me to give allowance to other people's faults. Use me, Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.